Well, you take away Ernie's choir, and he just multiplies himself. It's no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> Thank you, Ernie. Hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And today we'll be looking at verses 15 to 25. 15 to 25. The candle of hope has been lit, and we are reminded of just how much we need hope in this year of our Lord, 2020. And there's good news found in this scripture. The good news is that God can and God does give hope to his people. And there is no adversity. There is no year, even a year like 2020, that can stop God from bringing hope to his people. But here's the hard part. While we are desperate for that hope, while we want it right now, that hope may not come overnight. What is more often the case is that God builds our hope bit by bit, slowly but surely. And the key thing is whether or not we are willing to receive real and lasting hope, even when it comes bit by bit. Can we still wait for that hope even in the midst of adversity? Because this scripture also shows us that just as God builds our hope bit by bit, God uses adversity, hurt, pain, loss, in order to wean us off of our wishful thinking, our fantasies of what we think is best for us and what we think is best for the world. God uses adversity to wean us off of that wishful thinking. Are you still ready to receive hope? This is real hope, lasting hope. But to receive it, what we see in the scripture is this truth. Your response to adversity will reveal whether you have put your trust and your hope in God or in your wishful thinking about God. Have you really put your hope in God himself as God has made himself known to us through his word? Or are you really putting your hope in your wishful thinking about God? How can we tell the difference? Let's turn to our scripture to see the difference. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, 
He wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Here's the context. After David's grievous sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he then compounded his error by having her husband Uriah murdered by his enemies, the Ammonites. And it looked like David had gotten away with it. By all appearances, he had fooled everyone except God, and God sent his prophet Nathan to confront him, and instead of confronting him directly to say, you've done wrong, David, he uses a parable. He says there was a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man took advantage of the one thing that the poor man had, one little lamb. And David sees the injustice in this, and he he says, How dare he? The man who did this must die. And then Nathan utters those haunting words, You are the man. And he says, God gave you everything you could have asked for. He made you king over Israel. And if that weren't enough for you, he would have done even more. But David was not satisfied with God or with what God had given And so God brings his judgment upon David and his household. He says, after David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Plain and simple, no excuses. I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And what we read beginning in verse 15 is the fulfillment of that. And so we need to bear down on verse 15. Because what we see in verse 15 are two options. Two options. We have the true God or our preferred God. And for all of us, our preferred God would never do something like this. This is a disturbing text, a disturbing scripture by any light. This seems wrong, even in light of what David had done, committing adultery, committing murder. Now, this child, 
a baby is now afflicted by God? This seems wrong. This is not our preference. This is not how we want to imagine God. God doesn't do things like this. Does he? Bear down on verse 15. What can we say about this? Well, at the outset, I need to say there are no comfortable answers to our questions about this. There are answers, but they are not comfortable answers. I can't simply wrap this up and put a bow on it and say, here, it's all better. This is troubling. This is disturbing. What do we do with this? Well, the first thing we need to say is the most obvious and probably the hardest for us to accept, and that is that God did it. God did it. We read, the Lord struck the child. Now, our, our instincts want to say, okay, let's dig into the Hebrew here and try to find a way out of this. We, God didn't do this directly, did he? And yet, any honest reading of this will not allow us to get out of it. God did it. God did it. And it's not our preference. It's not how we imagine things in our wishful thinking. But if we're to have real and lasting hope, we need to bear down. We need to accept God as he has made himself known to us and not as we would like God to be. And the simple fact is God did it. We can't get God off the hook. We want to get God off the hook. Anytime something bad happens, we want to say, well, God, maybe God allowed it, but God, God isn't directly involved. And yet this is in the active voice. The Lord did it. So now we have to ask the question, why did the Lord do it? Why did the Lord do it? And the Lord did it first to punish David. God makes this very clear. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, because you have scorned God, because you have shown contempt for God, because you don't accept what God has given with gratitude, the son born to you will die. But we also need to add something here very important. This is a punishment for sin, but it is not a payment for sin. Do you see the difference? This is a direct consequence of something David did. But no human being can make satisfaction to a holy God for their sins. Only God himself and the person of Jesus Christ can make atonement, can make satisfaction for your sin and my sin. There's no payment. It's not like, oh, David, you committed adultery. David, you committed murder. Now, in exchange for that, to make restitution, now I'm going to take your son. That's not how it works. That's ridiculous to think that any human being could make payment. This is a punishment, not a payment. We also need to add this truth, that while each person is responsible for their own sins, that doesn't mean that your sin will not have consequences for someone else. No sin happens in a vacuum. 
it has a way of rippling out. As much as we want to contain it and box it in, it ripples out. It has consequences. But on the other hand, no person has to answer for the sins of another person. You don't have to answer for the sins of your mother or your father. Each one of us must stand before the judgment of seat of Christ as individuals. As individuals. You don't answer for anybody else. You answer for your own offenses against a holy God. That We need to be very clear about that. But that does not mean, even though only you can answer for your sins, that other people won't be affected by your sin. We need to be very clear about that. And that's what's happening here. God is punishing David. And God's doing this to humble David, to subdue David. Because without any consequences, if if we just left it at the second half of verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin, you're not going to die, well then he's scot-free, right? He's off. He's off the hook entirely. There are no consequences. And he would seem to profit from his sin, from his wrongdoing. But what God is doing is showing David's not profiting from his sin. He's only profiting from the grace of God, the amazing, sovereign, free grace of God. It's not because of anything David has done that he can take credit for. He's not benefiting. He's not gaining by this. That's why God did it, to punish David, to humble David, to subdue David, to make sure that David won't make this same mistake again. Now, here's the next question. If that's true, if God really did it, and if God did it to punish and to humble David, then how then can we say God is good? How can a good God do something like this to a child? And some of us may say, well, that kind of God is a monster. I don't want anything to do with that God. I'm I'm repulsed by that God. And, And while that's certainly understandable, we need to understand that we don't get to create God out of our own imagination out of our own wishful thinking. We take God as God has made himself known, as he has revealed himself. Otherwise, we'd be sitting around saying, well, I like to think of God like this. Well, I like to think of God like that. I like to imagine God as kind of a cosmic Santa Claus who always does good things and gives good gifts. But the revealed God, the true God, will not allow himself to be characterized by that, will not allow himself to be boxed in by our imagination, by our wishful thinking. But still, God reveals himself in his word to be good, to be holy, to be just, to be loving. How how could he do this? Here's what we need to remember. God is always doing more than meets the eye. God is always doing more than meets the eye. And God is fully capable of simultaneously punishing David for his sins and saving this child by his grace. God is capable of doing both of these things at the same time. Punishing David and saving this child. 
Now, why would we think that God is saving this child? This child is afflicted. He becomes ill. He dies. There's no salvation in that, is there? Well, look at what David says in verse 23. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David is saying he has gone to be with the Lord. He has gone to heaven, and there's no coming back. That's a one-way street. But I will go to him. And so we see in, in even this loss and this adversity and this pain and this hurt, the hope of life beyond this life, life beyond this earth. And so this comes down to a simple question. Do you believe that there is life on the other side of this life? Is heaven real or not? Because if heaven's not real, if that's just a fairy tale, well then there's no justice in this, there's no goodness in this. But if there is, then this child, while yes, afflicted in this life on this earth, has gone on to a better place. He is in the presence of a holy, loving, and merciful God. And so we can't interpret someone's fate by just this life. There is life beyond this, we believe, because God has revealed it. And so here's what this means for you in Advent 2020. Can you still say, God, I put my hope in you, even when, even when, what God does is the complete opposite of what you think is best for you or your loved ones. Can you say that? This is where real and lasting hope is to be found. And no, it doesn't come overnight. It comes bit by bit, slowly but surely, but it is real. And your response to adversity will show whether you've put your trust and your hope in God or in how you want to think about God, your own wishful thinking about God. Consider these words from Job. Think of all that Job lost, his family, his children, his property. Here's what he says in Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he kill me, if it's not God's will for me to continue living, yet will I hope in him. Can you say that? Or you say, no, God wants me to live. God wants my loved ones to live. There's no way that God would want me to die. Be careful. Is that wishful thinking about God or is that really God? Which do you really hope in? Consider the Lord Jesus. In his human nature, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of the world literally upon his shoulders, and in his human nature, what does he say? God, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. And what is the cup? The cup is a biblical metaphor for God's wrath poured out against sin. And Jesus, knowing that that's what awaits him, Jesus, the, the only innocent, righteous, holy person to ever live, he says, Father, if there's any other way, take this from me. That's not my preference. That's not on my wish list. That's not on my bucket list. That's not what I want. But Father, 
Not my will, but yours be done. And remember, Jesus and only Jesus can make satisfaction for your sins. It's only because of Jesus that God can say to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, period. The Lord has taken away your sins. That doesn't mean that the consequences won't still come. That doesn't mean that we won't still reap what we sow. But God has paid the penalty, period. And you can receive it if, if you choose the true God. Well, what does David do in light of what God does? In verses 16 to 17, we see two responses. Two responses. You can strive or you can stand off. You can strive or you can stand off. David chose to strive. He pleaded with God for the child. Can you hear the cries of David as he lies face down the ground? God, take me as any parent would. God, not my child. Take me. But notice the contrast with the elders. They stand off thinking, what's going on? What, what, what is he doing? He, he, he won't eat any food. He's just wearing sackcloth. He's showing signs of repentance. What's happening? Maybe they know what he's done. Maybe they don't know what he's done. Maybe they have no idea why he is so remorseful. But either way, David is pleading with God. And so when adversity strikes in your life, whether it's just 2020 in general or something specific to your life, will you be drawn toward God in the midst of that adversity or will you be driven away from God? Will you turn to God, wrestle with God, plead with God, say, God, please? Or will you take a passive approach Say, well, prayer doesn't make any difference. I can't change anything. His fate is sealed, I guess. What, what can we do? No, may adversity lead you to strive, to wrestle, to plead with God. We don't know what God might do. And so as long as there is still hope, pray, pray, pray for healing. Pray for reconciliation. Whatever it is in your life that is a burden, that is a struggle, pray for that. Plead with God. But on the seventh day, the child died. And we see how David's attendants were afraid to tell him. They say, if he was acting like that, he wouldn't eat food when the child was living. What's he going to do now? He might do something dangerous, something desperate now that the child has died, and David notices they're talking and asks the question, is the child dead? And they answer, yes. Now, look at what David does. He gets up, he washes, puts on lotion, changes clothes, and where does he go? He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't compute with his attendance at all. They're saying, what? Now's the time to grieve. Now's the time to put on sackcloth. Now's the time to, to 
resist and to, and to plead. But that's not what he does, is it? And so what we see here are two outlooks in the face of loss, in the face of adversity. Two outlooks, acceptance or resistance. Acceptance or resistance. David says, here's why I was doing that. Verse 22, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Do you see how David is able to accept God's no? Not because he wanted to. He wanted the complete opposite. That he was pleading. He was pouring his heart out to God for the sake of his child. But God said no. And so you can either accept that or you can resist that. And say, God, why? No, no. This is wrong. What you have allowed is wrong. What you have done is wrong. You can fight it. And that's the attitude of his attendants and his advisors here. They're thinking, no, now's the time to be upset, David. And yet David goes to God to worship. And so, can you accept God's no? Because if you will, if you will accept God's no, when, when the door has been shut, we know sometimes life is like this. We, we've been praying for something and the door just shuts. And it hurts. And we will grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. If we will accept God's no in this set of circumstances, whatever they are, however painful, then we're prepared to hear God's yes to something else. But as long as we fixate on that no, and we fight with God over that no, we're angry with God over that no, we're not ready to hear the yes. Yeah, I've shut that door, Dane, yes, but look over here. And as long as you obsess over this and fixate on this, you're not looking at this open door. And I promise you, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you will accept God's no, when God just says, that's not my plan for you, that's not my will for you, I know you want that, I know you've prayed for that. When I say no, I mean no. But there's always a yes if you can see beyond the no. David did. He went toward God. He was content with God's wisdom. He was able to say, God, you know best. This isn't what I wanted, but you know best. He was content with God's goodness. God, you are sovereign. God, you are good. You are holy. You are righteous. You are just. While I don't understand it, while it breaks my heart to think about this, God, you are good. You are wise. And you know more than I know. And you see more than I see. What does he do next? Verse 24. He comforted his wife Bathsheba. Notice for the first time she's called his wife. No longer the wife of Uriah. While this marriage may have begun in immoral ways, in sinful ways, it's still a marriage she is his wife, and he is her husband. And he goes to her, and another son is 
born, a son named Solomon. And what we need to see in the name Solomon is the Hebrew word shalom, peace, peace, restoration, wholeness. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh, beloved of the Lord. This is a special child. So notice here two outcomes. Two outcomes. Trust or turning away. You can trust or you can turn away. This is a sign of God's faithfulness. However small, however overlooked, it's just a baby after all, right? But this is a sign that God has not rejected David. Yes, David has been punished. Yes, David has been held accountable. Yes, the consequences for his sin will be passed down from generation to generation. But God is faithful to his king and to his people. And he's proven that with the birth of a son. But some will turn away from this and say, is that it? (laughs) Is that it? Is that all we have to look forward to? The birth of a child? Or will you trust that through this child, God is doing more than meets the eye? It's just as some angels said to some sleepy shepherds in Luke 2, verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in whose town? The town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And here's the kicker. This will be a sign to you. You ready? This is it. It's a big buildup. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What? This is the hope of the world? This is what we've been waiting for? This is the Messiah? And he's in an animal trough? Will you show contempt for that? Will you scorn that? Will you turn away? Or will you say, yes, this is God. This is the God who brings life out of death. This is the holy God who makes atonement for sinners by giving his very own son the righteous, innocent one, to die in their place. This is the God who brings redemption and salvation out of the cross. Will you trust Him? No matter how small, no matter how overlooked the sign might be, can you say, God, thank you. Thank you. Because what's propelling David, to pray, to plead, to wrestle with God. It's not that he hopes to manipulate God. It's it's not that he hopes to to strong-arm God. It's because God has shown him his grace. And that little seed of grace, no matter how small, no matter how overlooked, that's enough to give him confidence to come to this God to worship, to say, God, your will, not mine, be done. Can you pray that prayer today? In the midst of 2020, in the midst of whatever we see in the headlines, In the midst of whatever personal hardships you're facing in your life, whatever adversity there is, can you say, God, 
Not my will, but yours be done. God, I believe that you can and that you do build hope bit by bit. I pray that you would and that you'd receive the gift this Advent and that you would be strengthened. If you have any prayer concerns, if there's anything that you'd like to pray with, with me about, please reach out to me. If you're watching online, by email, find me after the service. Let's go to the Lord. This is a God who can give hope. May we trust him. So we go to him in prayer now. Dear Lord, forgive us for when we grow impatient, for when we get hasty and thinking we know what is best. Forgive us for when we put our trust and our hope in our own fantasies and our own wishful thinking instead of you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you that through your word you speak truth and that your truth shatters our illusions about what we think is best. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to trust you. Help us to put our hope in you. Help us to believe that you are more wise, that you are greater, that you know more, that you see more, that no matter how bad things appear to our eyes, that you are sovereign, that you are on your throne, and that there is nothing who can push you off your throne. And because of that, we, sinners like us, blood-bought sinners, can have hope. Lord, give us that hope today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.